Ankaj Basin was committed and spent three years after he was found not guilty by reason of insanity in 2019. That's because 38-year-old Pankaj Basin once suffered a psychiatric break, stabbing Bradford Jackson more than 50 times after believing he was a werewolf. But a few weeks ago, Basin was posting on a dating app. This profile describes Basin as, quote, an easygoing adventurer. Even in this digital age of Tinder, Bumble, Instagram DMs, Twitter DMs, where it's become increasingly common to start a relationship online, where it's no longer socially implied that you're going to have to lie about how you met, there's still a certain amount of reasonable caution when it comes to online dating. The early 2000s term catfishing is still very much applicable. You never really know who it is behind that profile. Could be a face that's nothing like the one you see on their profile pic. Could be a decade-old picture that might as well be a different face. Could be a man pretending to be a woman. Could be a woman pretending to be a man. Could be a man who stabbed a guy 53 times because he was convinced he was a werewolf. That's what East Coast users of such apps encountered in September, unbeknownst to them. The so-called werewolf killer on Bumble and elsewhere, describing himself as a, quote, easygoing adventurer who believes in universal connection with all and loves to explore and try new things. Having just been released after spending three years in a mental hospital in Virginia, he wrote that he had recently returned from two years of travel. I'd like to give a quick thanks to all of our lovely Patreon supporters who contribute each month to help support the production costs of this podcast Thank you very much for helping to keep the cogs of Homicide Inc. turning. It's a huge help. And an extra special thanks to our Yakuza members for your extra contributions and enjoy an additional two Homicide Inc. podcasts each month. Thanks, guys. And I'd like to invite you all to help raise awareness of this podcast by rating and reviewing it. Go ahead and click the five stars and leave a review if you'd like. Thanks so much. All right, let's get back into the story. In the early morning of July 13, 2018, 34-year-old Pankaj Basin drove from his New Jersey home to the D.C. area. He entered a Four Seasons hotel with a can of gasoline and demanded a room. After a hotel worker asked him to leave, he said, 90% if I die, everybody dies. There's still time to save everyone. He added that today is going to be a bad day. He then made his way to Old Town in Alexandria, Virginia, just across the Potomac River, where he walked into an alley near the Window Universe store to look at boxes that he believed contained human DNA. There, he saw Brad Jackson, the 65-year-old store manager, and followed him into the store, thinking that Jackson had information about those boxes. Jackson eventually confronted Basin, and as their interaction got more and more heated, Basin began to fight him, beating him, and stabbing him 53 times with a box cutter and gouging his eyes. Basin left the building covered in blood. Police later found him naked from the waist down in a car nearby. Basin told police and doctors that Jackson began turning into a werewolf during their encounter. He said, I had to kill Jackson 
to save 99% of the moon and planets. So how is he not in jail right now? How does one get out of something like this? How does one get to a position where they're able to be on dating apps after having stabbed a guy 53 times because they were convinced he was a werewolf? So what's the secret? Successfully impugning the character or credibility of the prosecution's most important witnesses? A selection of incredibly biased juries? Bribery? Dirt on the judge? The guy was actually a werewolf? It's simple, and not a secret at all. Not guilty by reason of insanity. The Bouvier Law Dictionary explains that not guilty by reason of insanity is a plea essentially admitting the defendant committed the act of the offense, yet denying responsibility because the defendant lacked the capacity to act with criminal intent at the time. In order for the so-called insanity defense to be successful, the defendant must prove, through the evidence provided, two things. A. That they were suffering from a severe mental disease or defect. And B that as a result of that mental disease or defect, they did not know that their conduct at the time of the crime was wrong. Even though the insanity plea is actually used in less than 1% of all criminal cases in the U.S. criminal justice system, there's still a long history of both successful and unsuccessful invocations of it, and no limit when it comes to the range of examples. In 1993, Lorena Bobbitt, was arrested after cutting off her then-husband's reproductive organ. Bobbitt argued that she suffered years of abuse and was sexually assaulted by John Bobbitt, which is what caused her to snap and cut off his dick. Due to her just keyword snapping momentarily, the jury found her not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. And incidentally, on a side note, John Wayne Bobbitt, that was his real name, was in a porno after his Johnson was severed and sewn back on. The title of the film was John Wayne Bobbitt Uncut. I'm not making this up. I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. Through friends. Okay, back on topic. In 2001, Andrea Yates confessed to drowning her five children in their bathtub. In 2002, she was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. In 2005, however, her conviction was overturned to false testimony of a prosecution witness, who, bizarrely enough, stated that shortly before the murders, an episode of Law & Order had aired featuring a woman who drowned her children and was acquitted of murder by reason of insanity. When Yates was retried in 2006, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Yates had a long medical history of suffering from severe postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis, and she had experienced episodes of psychotic behavior after the birth of each of her children. So, Yates's attorneys insisted that her postpartum depressions played a significant role in causing her actions. Alongside the predictable serial killers and mass shooters, Another category of perpetrators that are frequent beneficiaries of the insanity defense are would-be presidential assassins. Richard Lawrence, the first known person to attempt to assassinate a sitting U.S. president, 
tried and failed to shoot President Andrew Jackson in 1835. His weapon misfired twice, after which he was beaten by none other than Jackson himself with Jackson's cane. During his trial, he was prone to wild rants, refused to recognize the legitimacy of the proceedings, and at one point said to the courtroom, It is for me, gentlemen, to pass judgment on you and not you upon me. The jury found Lawrence not guilty by reason of insanity after five minutes of deliberation. In 1912, John Flamang Schrank attempted to assassinate then-former President Theodore Roosevelt, who famously just continued with his speech with the bullet lodged in his chest. Psychologists examined Schrank and reported that he had insane delusions, grandiose in character, declaring him to be insane. At his trial, the would-be assassin claimed that the late President William McKinley had visited him in a dream and told him to avenge his assassination by killing Roosevelt. Perhaps the most famous of all, John Hinckley Jr. In 1981, Hinckley developed an obsession with the movie Taxi Driver, and specifically with Jodie Foster. Unbeknownst to him, she's not interested in guys. He then began a long series of attempts to get her attention, stalking her by relocating to New Haven, Connecticut, near Yale University, where she was enrolled, signing up for a Yale writing class, slipping her poems and messages through her door, calling her persistently, even considering taking his own life in front of her, and finally settling for assassinating President Ronald Reagan. His attempt proved unsuccessful, despite firing multiple times. Hinckley's defense team pled for an insanity defense and overwhelmingly succeeded. He was acquitted of all 13 charges of assault, murder, and weapon counts. The high profile of the case led to a public outcry so enormous that it led to the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984, which made it significantly more difficult to obtain a verdict of not guilty only by reason of insanity. Idaho, Montana, and Utah abolished the defense altogether. After the trial, Hinckley wrote that the shooting was the greatest love offering in the history of the world and was disappointed that Foster didn't reciprocate his love. Pshaw! Generally speaking, there's no such thing as a case, if you'll pardon the pun, too insane for the insanity defense. Too ridiculous. But these next ones are certainly testing that claim. In 1994, Jonathan Schmitz was invited onto an episode of The Jenny Jones Show entitled Same-Sex Secret Crushes. This is a homiciding podcast, by the way. Check out episode 50. The show's producers invited Schmitz to the show, explaining that a secret admirer of his would be revealed. That secret admirer was Scott Amador, an associate of Schmitz. The producers reasserted that Schmitz was fully aware that the show was about same-sex crushes. Schmitz would later claim that he expected to find his ex-girlfriend on stage, but found Amador instead, who would go on to describe his sexual fantasy involving Schmitz on the program. Three days later, Amador left Schmitz a suggestive note. Upon finding the note, Schmitz purchased a shotgun, confronted him, and shot him twice in the chest, 
killing him. The defense used by Schmitz's attorneys was known as the, quote, gay panic defense, defined as a state of temporary insanity caused by undesirable homosexual advances. Schmitz, however, was ultimately found guilty. In 1981, Steven Steinberg was accused of murdering his wife, stabbing her 26 times. Steinberg didn't deny killing his wife, but he did claim to have done so while sleepwalking, which technically meant he wasn't in his right mind at the time. The closest analogy to this assertion was the insanity defense. A jury found Steinberg not guilty on the grounds that he, also, was temporarily insane when he killed her, and because he was deemed sane at the time of his acquittal, Steinberg walked out of the court a free man. All of a sudden, a werewolf-slaying, moon-and-planet-saving murderer seems like a pretty run-of-the-mill nutcase case to take on. The jury trial of Pankaj Basin commenced in March 2019. Numerous treating mental health professionals were brought forward, in addition to two expert witnesses, to comment on Basin's mental state. Basin was represented by defense attorney Peter Greenspun. So, how did the defense approach proving those two points necessary for a successful insanity defense? How about the first one? The fact that the perpetrator was suffering from a severe mental disease or defect. The doctor's and expert's evaluations were obviously invaluable, though Greenspun would also focus on one specific aspect to make it more convincing and easily comprehensible to the jury. The incredibly abrupt nature of the radical shift in Basin's behavior, lacking the required planning or premeditation of the crime for it to be considered one committed of sound mind. Friends and family did testify that Basin had been a successful, happy person up until very recently. He was living in Washington and working as a risk analyst before leaving his job to travel the world. And he had returned to New Jersey about eight months before the attack to help take care of his sick father. It was then that those around him noticed that he began acting bizarrely. He was drinking his own urine and gasoline, and would claim to be the Hindu god of death, Yama. Basin was hospitalized in June 2018, just one month before the incident, after attacking his parents, saying that they were trying to poison him and that he had to kill them so he could take them to heaven. He responded to medication, but when he was released six days later, he quickly deteriorated and then disappeared. His parents were looking for him when the police called to say he was in custody in Virginia. Greenspun jumped on that, emphasizing the fact that Mr. Basin did not have a significant mental health history until mid-June 2018. His condition took a downward spiral over less than a month. There was no connection at all between Mr. Basin and the deceased. As far as the second point, the perpetrator not being aware that their conduct at the time of the crime was wrong, that's where the defense leaned much more heavily on the expert evaluations. Five doctors separately diagnosed Basin with bipolar I disorder, and Greenspun argued that Basin's mental illness made him unable to understand his own actions that day. What's bipolar I disorder? Well, 
It's defined by manic episodes that last at least seven days, most of the day, nearly every day, or by manic symptoms that are so severe that the person needs immediate hospital care. He went on to describe it as a case of tragedy for the Jackson friends and family, and also for Pankaj Basin and his family. The sudden and heartbreaking serious mental health deterioration of a man suffering from severe bipolar disorder was the sole cause of this random and otherwise inexplicable act. The two expert witnesses also concluded that Basin met the definition of legal insanity. Prosecutors did not at first put on an expert to counter testimony, nor did they dispute the medical consensus, but contended that Basin exaggerated his symptoms to cover up an intentional crime, stressing that intelligent people like the defendant know what to say to mental health professionals, and also pointing out that after the attack, Basin showed awareness of his actions, telling a detective, Clearly, I'm going to jail for something. I've done this. I've got to have penance. The case did initially result in a mistrial on March 27th, after the jury deliberated for three days, but could not reach a unanimous verdict. It was determined that, while not unanimous, at least nine of the twelve jurors were in favor of a not guilty by reason of insanity verdict. That's when the Commonwealth's attorney's office ordered its own psychiatric evaluation following the mistrial, and that doctor agreed that Basin was clinically insane when he killed Jackson. In light of that conclusion, the Commonwealth's attorney said that it would be unethical to put Basin on trial again. On July 1, 2019, Pankaj Basin was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was ordered to be confined at the Northern Virginia Mental Health Institute. Basin was released from the facility earlier this year, his doctors judging that he's well enough to rejoin the community. An Alexandria judge signed an order for what was called a conditional release. Friends of Jackson voiced their distress with the decision, one saying that it's terrifying to think that after three years this is acceptable, that this is what we call justice. It's scary. Another simply said that anyone that's capable of doing that is capable of doing that again. The Commonwealth's Attorney's Office also stated that they strenuously objected to the release. A review hearing will be held in December of 2022 to evaluate whether or not the plan for Basin's release is working. Shortly after reports of Basin's dating profile went public, prosecutors filed a motion to either prohibit Basin from using the internet social media, or online dating programs, or require software to monitor his internet use, claiming that his dating profile misrepresented what has happened in recent years, to put it mildly. Basin's attorney countered that the profile was cut and pasted from an old profile Basin created prior to Jackson's death, and claimed that Basin is, quote, doing well in his return to the community working with his treatment team, and taking college classes. The judge was unconvinced. Basin was told to stay off social media, as long as he's on conditional release. He will be allowed to keep using LinkedIn as he looks for a job. Very interesting. 
A shortcut to freedom is granted by not guilty by reason of insanity, at the cost of a shortcut to getting laid. Well, thanks very much for tuning in to the Homicide, Inc. True Crime Podcast. I'd like to invite you again to rate this podcast, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Be a pal, click the stars, and leave a review if you'd like to. This helps tremendously in getting our podcast into more ears. Thank you very much. Also, make sure you subscribe so you'll get notifications as soon as a new episode is released. And be sure to check out our Patreon campaign for exclusive Homicide Inc. podcasts that are available first to patrons. That information is in the description of this podcast. If you have a compelling true crime story you'd like me to consider investigating, please send me an email. And if you'd like to help support the production of the Homicide Inc. podcast, you can always buy us a coffee. Those details are also in the description and on the Homicide Inc. website, where you can hear all the podcasts and some other cool stuff. Well, thanks so much, and we'll see you again very soon. Ciao for now.